We were here the other evening, but I'd like to have us uh, consider again Psalm 118. So if you want to turn to Psalm 118, then we're going to be in numbers of other passages, mostly in the New Testament, and we will come, come back to Psalm 118 two or three times, so we're going to do a bit of a tour this morning. And while you're finding that, let me say a word of prayer for us this morning. Our Father, we come to you now to the the pinnacle of any worship service, and that is to hear the very words of God read from the Bible. It is the ultimate in truth. It is unadulterated. It is pure. And so I pray, Lord, that our consideration of your word this morning would be just that, pure and holy. We would be righteous before you as we listen to the word as we consider the truths that are so near and dear to us, particularly this day as we consider the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Friday evening at our Good Friday service, we considered the first half of Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected. And now we can relieve the tension that some of you felt because we never finished the verse. We never said the part that we longed to hear. Psalm 118, 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now you recall from Friday evening that in ancient times, large structures were built on foundations of stones, but these were huge, massive stones. They didn't require any mortar But they did require a perfect fit, absolute perfect fit. Stones were brought from wherever they were quarried nearby, the foreman or the master builder, and his team made a final decision as to which stones were fit, were worthy, were okay to use. If the stone wasn't perfect, if if it wasn't finished properly, or the corners weren't perfectly squared, then the stone was rejected. And that's exactly the imagery at play here in Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected. And if you recall, the context of Psalm 118 recalls the fact that the stone is a person. And the person, in verses 10 through 14, is in the middle of a ring of enemies. All nations surrounded me. They surrounded me. Indeed, they surrounded me. They surrounded me like bees. They pushed me down violently to make me fall. And so this person, this stone, is rejected by the builders. Now, the stone is easily identifiable from Scripture. The stone, this rejected person, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we saw Friday evening that Psalm 118 takes a prophetic note. Isaiah 28, 16 says that this stone is a tested stone, a costly stone. In other words, Jesus is the best of the best. He's the precious stone. He's the stone upon which Israel should have been built. He is the only perfect stone. Instead, he was rejected. I wanted you to focus Friday evening on the stone that the builders rejected because the Bible in so many different places cites or quotes Psalm 118.22 that most of us can finish the verse has become the chief cornerstone. What did the rejection of the stone ultimately mean? It meant the death of Christ, the death of the stone. And so if the stone is rejected, killed, How is it that the stone now becomes the chief cornerstone, becoming the most important structure in the building of the kingdom of God? Well, quite simply, 
the statement has become the chief cornerstone is an affirmation that when the stone is rejected, when he is killed, sometime after this, the stone will be exalted and will be central and will be glorified and will be honored. So what does this mean? It means that has become the chief cornerstone is a clear assertion of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many hundreds of years before Christ was even born. So what should you know about the chief cornerstone? The Bible references Christ as the cornerstone in numerous different places and putting some of these together will help us paint a picture of what God would have us to understand about Christ as the chief cornerstone, the pivotal foundational piece of redemptive history. And I'd like to give you six important facts about the cornerstone. The first fact we'll just call the cornerstone's victory. The cornerstone's victory. We're going to go to a passage I referenced last Friday evening, but now we'll spend some time there. Turn with me to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, we're going to see a parable that we read Friday evening. We'll be going back to Psalm 118 and back to Matthew 21 a couple of times. We referenced and read this parable, but it warrants revisiting for a a different purpose. I think what's important for us this morning is that when Jesus tells this parable, we need to know who he's speaking to. We need to know who the audience is. The audience consists of the spiritual enemies of Jesus. Those who refuse to acknowledge that he's Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he's the King of Israel. You notice in Matthew 21, verse 23, this is his audience. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? That's his audience. So as he's speaking to his spiritual enemies, now we pick up a parable in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruit. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, Jesus is directly challenging the unbelief, the the lack of faith of the leaders of Israel. And we pointed out Friday night that the leaders knew precisely that he was speaking to them that this accusation is directed right at them. Verse 45, And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Now, in a little while, I'm going to return to the condemnation of these men, but I want to direct your attention to the part of Psalm 118 that Jesus focused upon when he confronted these leaders. Verse 42 Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The parable predicts the death of the Son. 
But Jesus in verse 42, quoting Psalm 118, verse 22, and now to verse 23, he makes two important declarations, two important assertions by citing this particular verse. First of all, he declares that the death of the son at the hands of the wicked tenants of the vineyard is not the end of the son. He has become the chief cornerstone. He will rise from the dead. He's asserting his own resurrection. The second declaration he's making is that true believers, rather than hating the Son, true believers cry out, it is marvelous in our eyes that the resurrection of the Son of God makes the heart of the faithful overflow with gladness and joy. Why is that? Well, the reason we're all here today, the resurrection of the Son of God defeats death. The resurrection defeats the doom that all humanity under the curse of sin must experience. The victory of Christ over death guarantees your victory over death. Because his death paid the rightful penalty for sin which you owed to God and it paved the way for you also to be resurrected. The the greatest fear of mankind, what happens when I die, we have a Savior who's already been there and done that as they say and who leads us. Part of the cornerstone's victory, which is so tremendous, is the fact that he predicted this victory while he was doing his ministry on earth. Jesus predicted he would be turned over to the leadership of Israel, that he would be tried, that he would be convicted, that he would be crucified, and he predicted that he would rise from the dead and even said how long it would take. Three days. But as if that isn't astounding enough, Psalm 118 not only predicts the death and resurrection of the Son of God at the time Psalm 118 was written, but it demonstrates that this was planned in eternity past. So let's flip back once again to Psalm 118. We'll piece together a little bit more of this. What's so very marvelous about the fact that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? What's marvelous about it is the origin. The death and resurrection of Christ was not a reactionary move. It was not a plan B on the part of God for the sake of sinful mankind. The death and resurrection of Christ was always plan A and there was never a plan B. This plan is from God from eternity past. Psalm 118.22, again, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone This is from Yahweh. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, we have to do a little technical work here. We need to follow the pronouns, the non-specific words used to refer to something. Verse 23, this is from Yahweh. What is this? Well, the Hebrew word order is important. It reads literally, from Yahweh is this. The antecedent of the pronoun that refers to what came directly before it This, the antecedent is, the fact of the resurrection of Christ. This is the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, immediately following this is the pronoun, it. It is marvelous in our eyes, the fact of the resurrection of Christ. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And now we venture, understanding those pronouns now, now we venture into another verse, which perhaps you're most familiar with, And it begins with another pronoun, this. And it continues the unbroken string of pronouns still referring to the resurrection of Christ. Verse 24, this is the day which Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 
Now here's where it gets astonishing. What is the day that the true believer is to rejoice in? What is the day that the true believer is to be glad in? It is the day of the resurrection of the Son of God. But catch this. This is the day which Yahweh has made. This is a verb form which refers to a completed action. Something that's been already accomplished. That's why it's usually translated in the past tense. You see, Psalm 118 is not the moment that God planned the resurrection of Christ. Psalm 118 simply reports that God had already planned it. It was already planned. It was already in the eternal, perfect, redemptive plan of God. The cornerstone's victory is so marvelous because this was always going to be the outcome of God's plan. There was never any doubt. There was never a plan B. Christ was going to conquer death and He was going to lead many sons to glory as a result. Let me give you a second important fact about the cornerstone. We'll call this the cornerstone's grace. The cornerstone's grace. And we'll take a minute to get here and and your Bible's getting used to this now, but turn back to Matthew 21 again. In this confrontation of the wicked leaders of Israel, Jesus issues a warning. And the warning is this. My patience is growing slow. It is growing to the point where it will end. They should heed his prediction that they were in fact the evil tenants of his story, the evil vine growers. Matthew twenty-one forty-two. Then Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Remember who he's speaking to. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Now remember, Jesus has been offering the kingdom of God to the Jews since his ministry began. Our messages in Matthew's gospel over the past months have just pounded this home that Matthew's gospel is all about. Come into the kingdom, come into the kingdom. Be part of the kingdom of Christ on earth. And so Jesus makes a declaration. He makes an assertion. And please note here, there's not really an opportunity being given here to these Wicked men, at least not individually or not nationally rather, some of the Pharisees we learn from the book of Acts would eventually repent. But as far as this group of leaders representing Israel as a whole, there is no more chance to repent. This is not an offer. This is not a plea. Nationally, Israel was going to be judged. The kingdom is going to be taken from them for a time. And so what was Christ's kingdom program in the meantime? The kingdom he says, is given to a nation producing the fruit of it, that this nation will produce more and more and more kingdom citizens. Now, in this particular case, Jesus uses the term nation as a counterpoint to Israel. But he's not speaking of a geographic or an ethnic nation. He's speaking of a people not defined by borders, by language, or by heritage, but defined by regeneration. Defined by... By being those who do worship Christ, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the great fact of the new covenant in Christ. So what is this so-called nation? This nation is the church. It's the growing ranks of the people of God who worship Christ in the time between his rejection of national Israel and his second coming. The Apostle Paul viewed Jesus as the cornerstone of the church Turn forward with me to Ephesians chapter 2. 
where we can see where Paul identifies Christ as such. Ephesians 2, after the glorious declaration of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, in the very first part of chapter 2, Paul declares the unity of both Jew and Gentile, not in a national or ethnic setting, but in a spiritual setting of unity in Christ as part of the church. Ephesians 2, 19, the Apostle Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, Christ is exalted as the cornerstone. This is happening right now. He's the founder of the church. He's the one who gave us the apostles. He's the one who gave us the apostles' ministry. He's the one who gave us the apostles' inspired writings. The New Testament, that's the foundation of the church. And Paul stays with this building metaphor, this this picture of a building, to show that on the cornerstone, the church, this nation he speaks of in this parable, is building. Ephesians 2.21 In whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, what does Jesus telling the Pharisees that he has rejected national Israel for this age and turned to a different nation, to a different people, what does this have to do with the cornerstone's grace? Early on in his ministry, Jesus traveled a bit north His entire ministry happened literally within walking distance. You could walk everywhere he went. But he traveled to the region of Tyre. And there was a woman there who had a little daughter. She was possessed by a demon. And she came begging Jesus for help. Mark 7.26 picks up the story. Now the woman was a Greek of Syrophoenician descent. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. The point is is that Jesus was asserting that his ministry was first to Israel. That was his top priority. He came to offer the kingdom to his people. He wasn't being cruel. And he did, in fact, help the little girl. But he's emphasizing that his ministry is very Israel-focused. But once Israel officially rejected the stone of Psalm 118, Jesus told the Pharisees he's turning to another nation. Again, but what does that have to do with the cornerstone's grace? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, coming to the world first to offer the kingdom of God to Israel, but because the builders rejected the stone, rejected their Savior, rejected their King, the gospel of forgiveness of sin by the grace of God has gone out from Bethlehem where Jesus first entered the world. Even now, at this very moment, the glorious, life-altering, tremendous good news that God is holy, God is righteous, God is wrathful, 
Yet he paid the way for anyone who receives Christ and his message to have the wrath of God against your sin assuaged and propitiated and satisfied. That good news, even now, is being proclaimed 7,505 miles away from Bethlehem to a bunch of dogs in Bakersfield. That's grace. You're not his chosen nation. You're not his chosen people. Yet you have been included. Here's a third important fact we'll call the cornerstone's future. The cornerstone's future. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Go with me to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28. Now, given that the cornerstone turned away from Israel for now, does that mean he's finished with them for all time? Does that mean that the promises of God made to King David... That David would have a descendant on the throne of Israel. Are they gone forever? No. They're not gone now. They're just gone for now. But the fact is, is that the cornerstone has a future. A destiny set by God in eternity past. And Isaiah is one of many hundreds of places in the Old Testament which proclaims this future. And just to kind of get you up to speed to what's happening in Isaiah 28. Isaiah has been preaching warning and repentance to Israel. Israel is brazenly rejecting this message. But Isaiah, who is a a gutsy and faithful preacher, he's going to preach the word of God to them anyway. Isaiah 28, 14. 28, 14. Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have cut a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overflowing scourge will not reach us when it passes by, For we have made falsehood our refuge and we have hidden ourselves with lying. They've made falsehood their refuge. Same thing in verse 17. The refuge of falsehood. Talk about the height of arrogance. Did you hear what they said in verse 15? We've had a talk with death and we've made a deal. Outside of faith in God. The overwhelming scourge. This is a mixing of the metaphors between a flood and scourging, whipping, That when the flood of whipping and punishing comes, we'll be fine. We're not afraid of death. They're self-righteous and they believe themselves inherently worthy. But it's not going to last. Look at verse 18. Your covenant with death will be canceled. And your pact with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will become its trampling place. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning after morning, it will pass through any time during the day or night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the report. In other words, everything you say won't happen to you is precisely what is going to happen. Back in verse 12, Israel was offered a resting place. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. But they would not listen to rest in the Lord like the safety of climbing into your parents' bed during a thunderstorm. But they say they wouldn't hear it. We'll make our own bed of safety, but it won't be enough. Look at verse 20. The bed is too short on which to stretch out, and the blanket is too narrow to wrap oneself in. What is Isaiah telling Israel? He's saying that the Lord who used to fight for you 
is now going to fight against you. And it's going to seem strange. It's going to seem alien. Verse 21. For Yahweh will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to work his work, his unusual work, and to labor in his labor, his exceptional labor. This is a reference to two illustrations that reinforce God's threat. The first one is from 2 Samuel 5.20 where David praised the Lord for breaking the Philistines apart like a flood and giving them victory at Mount Perizim. The second illustration speaks of the hailstorm that helped Joshua defeat five kings on the long day at Gibeon when the sun stood still in Joshua 10 verse 11. In both cases, God was on Israel's side fighting for her. But now God will fight against her. That's the unusual work. That's the exceptional labor. And Isaiah gives a warning in verse 22. So now do not carry on as scoffers, lest your feathers be made stronger. For I have heard from Lord Yahweh of hosts of complete destruction, one that is decreed on all the earth. Now back in verse 14, same word is used here in verse 22. The scoffers. The scoffers. Isaiah has been giving an oracle to the northern kingdom of Israel in this particular case. But he suddenly seems to shift to this group he calls the scoffers. And he specifically says, you scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Interesting. Jerusalem was not in the northern kingdom. Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. Who is he speaking to here? The people who will rule Jerusalem. The people who will be in charge of Israel. The leaders of God's people in Jerusalem. Those who are arrogant. Those who believe they're righteous before God because of their good works. Who have verse 15 made a covenant with death. They've made lies their refuge. These aren't the leaders of the present day in Isaiah's day. These are the leaders in Jesus' day. 700 years in the future. And God has a message for them. Here's the message in verse 16. Therefore, thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. That there's coming a stone, not just a stone, but a tested stone, not just a tested stone, but a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And whoever believes on the stone won't be disturbed. It's It's a word that means won't be scurrying around, won't be in an emergency mode, won't be trying to trust in self, won't be trying to justify self. And the stone is tested. It can't be crushed. It can't be destroyed. It'll be tested, but it can't be shattered. And the stone will be the foundation in Zion, in Jerusalem. What's Isaiah saying here? Isaiah is saying that long after the wicked leaders of Israel have died and gone to their judgment, the cornerstone will be in Zion. He'll be in Jerusalem. Or... To put it as was told by God to the prophet Ezekiel concerning the house of God in Jerusalem in the future. Ezekiel 43, 7. He said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name. The cornerstone's future is a throne in Jerusalem. There's a fourth fact about the cornerstone we'll call the cornerstone's knowledge. 
the cornerstone's knowledge. Let's go back to the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 2. The cornerstone's knowledge we'll see in 1 Peter 2. And what we're going to see is that the cornerstone, as perfect God, holy God, he has perfect omniscience. He's all-knowing. And in particular, he's all-knowing about something that should concern every single person hearing this. Every single person here. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes upon him will not be put to shame. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. They stumble because they're disobedient to the word and to this stumbling. They were also appointed. The cornerstone becomes for those who will not believe a, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense that Jesus is offensive. That the idea of needing salvation is reprehensible. It provokes a how dare you response from a lost person. Who do you think you are? But verse 8 is very clear. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to the stumbling. They were also appointed. Now, we have to be very careful here. We're treading on delicate theological ground. If we aren't careful, we could inadvertently create a class of people that doesn't exist. A class of people who really, really, really wanted to come to faith in Christ, really wanted to be Christians, really wanted to go to heaven, really desired forgiveness of sin, really yearned to be with God for all eternity, but they were prevented because they weren't chosen by God. That class of person does not exist. Now, I won't deny that this is a lofty concept, but the word order is very important here in verse 8. The primary action here is that the unbeliever stumbles over the cornerstone because of unbelief, being disobedient to the gospel, scoffing at the gospel of Christ. So what does that tell us about this all-knowing knowledge of God that, yes, sovereign God has, in fact, appointed the doom of the unbeliever? But the means by which this will be accomplished is the genuine, culpable, responsible rejection and disobedience by the unbeliever, by the lost person. This is not stumbling like an accidental stumble. This is a stumbling which refuses to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Or to put it this way, this isn't stumbling over the cornerstone. This is kicking the cornerstone. The all-knowing cornerstone has warned many times in Scripture. John 3, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus said in John 3, 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe the Son, does not obey the Son, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He said in John 8, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Now, I know there might be somebody wondering, but what if I'm in that category? Remember I said a minute ago, the category of the person who wishes to be saved but is prevented doesn't exist. If you're wondering, could I say this? That's a good sign. The danger comes when you don't even believe that the category of a person who rejects Christ is even there. So what do you do? 
Prove that you're not in the category of the one that rejects Christ and humbly ask the Lord Jesus for his mercy. Ask the cornerstone for forgiveness. Jesus made a promise. He said, To come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Here's a fifth important fact about the cornerstone. We'll call this the cornerstone superiority. The cornerstone superiority. Turn with me back a few books to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. In the days following the ascension of Christ, the apostle Peter was arrested by the same council which condemned Jesus to death so recently. Peter's been proclaiming the gospel and the effect has been astonishing. It's been something that we, we dream of in the church. Acts 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Astonishing effect of the preaching of the gospel. This is right after a healing. But Jesus, or Peter rather, was arrested and he spent a night in jail. He's brought before this council. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he preaches a scathing sermon with a, with a clear choice. Verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this na- name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Now, did you notice the direct connection between Jesus as the chief cornerstone and his resurrection? His resurrection was the moment of his becoming the chief cornerstone. It completed the mission of Christ on earth. You ever seen one of those action thriller movies where the bad guys think that they've finished off the good guy? And you know, looking at your watch, this can't be over yet. There's still 20 minutes left. But as the bad guys are gloating, the good guy has somehow survived their attack and comes back with a vengeance and you see the look of nightmarish terror on the bad guy's faces. This council saw Jesus' dead body carried to a grave. They saw a 6,000-pound stone rolled in front of the grave. They saw an armed Roman guard placed in front of the grave. Then they heard the story that the body of Jesus was gone. So they made up a rumor that Jesus' disciples stole the body. But the report that the body was gone came to them by the Roman soldiers who had fainted like little girls while the resurrection was happening. In other words, listen carefully, these leaders knew that Jesus' body wasn't stolen. They knew what really happened. And now... The lead follower of Jesus Christ, Peter, has just told them, the enemy you think you killed and aren't exactly sure what happened to him, remember him, he's alive. And then Peter gives them a choice and truly extends grace. That their only hope to get out of this mess of having crucified the Son of God is to worship the one they crucified because he's superior. He's the only way. He's the only hope. Verse 12, he makes an offer. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must 
be saved. There are no multiple paths to redemption with God. There are no multiple ways to God. There's one path, a superior path, salvation in Christ and Christ alone. That was the choice presented to them. That is the choice presented to all of us. There is no plan B. There's no other road. There's no other choice. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Superior cornerstone. And that really leads us into our sixth important fact about the cornerstone. We'll call this the cornerstone's power. The cornerstone's power. One last time, let's revisit Matthew 21. The parable of the landowner and the tenants. And I really want to cement this in our minds this morning. In verse 33... Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruit. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, remembering that Jesus is talking to his spiritual enemies, to the scoffers predicted in Isaiah 28, those who, verse 46, were going to try to seize him, He asks them a question. Verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And look at the justice and the correctness of the answer. Verse 41. They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Their answer is correct. Jesus has just hooked them and now he reels them in. You know how he reels them in? Did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And we've already seen that the other nation is primarily Gentiles in the church. Verse 41, the church is called other vine growers. But now, now the resurrected cornerstone makes a promise. He makes a declaration. And basically it's this, don't reject the cornerstone. Verse 44, and he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, what is he speaking of here? Some feel that this is a choice. Be broken on the stone in the sense of being broken in mercy or be crushed by the stone in judgment. That's a reasonable assessment. That is a factual choice. That's the choice that every person has. But is that what Jesus is speaking of here to his spiritual enemies? Is that what he's giving? No. This statement in verse 44 is based directly on Isaiah 8, 14, and 15, which is a warning, no choice, no grace, just a warning to apostate Israel about what the stone is going to do to all who reject him. 
Isaiah 8, 14 and 15. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. So what does this mean? And he who falls on this stone, speaking of falling on the stone, in this case, it's more the idea of attacking him like thieves fell on the innocent victim. Now, there seems to be a contrast, but on whomever it falls. This is a connective conjunction that may be translated but, but it also may be translated and. In fact, some English translations do translate this and on whomever it falls. That's a better translation. This is a contextual decision here. Jesus is not making an offer of salvation to these men. They've already rejected that. What he is telling them is that after after he has died, after he has been raised from the dead, there will be a reckoning. Yes, they may fall on him. They may pounce on him. They may think they've gained the victory. But what does he say? On whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. We have a record of that future event. It goes like this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sits upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death And Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's crushing. That's scattering like dust. Why is this the case? This is the case because the risen cornerstone has all the power. You have none. He has all of it. Jesus declared in John 5, 26, For just as the Father has life in in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself and to exercise authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. These men to whom Jesus was speaking, after hearing this horrifying declaration, did they soften? Did they exhibit fear? Did they exhibit shame? Did they cry out for mercy? No. They plotted all the more how they could murder Jesus. The choice is clear. The Lord Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church, of the people of God, an eternally firm foundation upon which to build His future kingdom. And you may be a part of that. You may be hidden with the stone. All the power that he has that could come against you can be for you. Or the risen cornerstone will conquer and overcome and crush all who have refused his gracious offer of salvation. Matthew 26 records that at the end of the final Passover meal, Jesus shared with his disciples just a few hours before Being arrested, they all sang a hymn together to close the traditional Passover celebration. And the hymn they would have sung to close the evening was Psalm 118. 
that just before being arrested and tried and murdered, Jesus would sing of his own resurrection. He would sing, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is from Yahweh. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Our Father, what can we say? What can we say but to express our gratitude, our our amazing, amazing astonishment that these bodies that are failing us because Christ is risen, our bodies will rise. Those who have received the cornerstone by faith, who have come to not be crushed by Him, but to be saved by Him. As we face our final moments on this earth, what great confidence we have, as the Apostle Paul said, that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. That we too will rise again, just like our Savior, just like our big brother in the faith. He is risen, and we celebrate that He is risen indeed. We celebrate that this is the day which Yahweh has made, and we will rejoice and we will be glad in it. We are glad this day because of Christ. Thank you for your gracious gift, and we pray in His name and for His glory. Amen.